Hello, and welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg. Today's guest is Tammy Amanda. Tammy is a personal betterment strategist. She has previously worked as a yoga teacher, an entrepreneur, a social worker. She is a trained psychotherapist. She's informed about somatic awareness practitioning. I think that's a word. She is well-versed in all things trauma and the nervous system, and in this episode, we dive deep into all of that. We talk about healing, forgiveness, feelings. We talk about her own experience with childhood sexual abuse. She is openly and vulnerably declaring her truths, talks about her journey through the world to where she is now, and it's lighthearted. It's really fun. We have a good time in this one while also conversing about a lot of really important topics that can help you to stimulate your own healing, your own reclamation of power. And uh, it's good. It's a really good episode. I think you're going to dig it. So without further ado, check out Tammy Amanda. All right. Should we just do a podcast? Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Will you please remind me which name you want to use? I'll go by Tammy, Tammy Amanda. I mean, (laughs) that works. (laughs) Okay. Tammy Amanda, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I felt like a little Jason Bourne moment there for a second. It's like, oh, which passport do you want to use on this adventure? (laughs) I love that I get to choose my identity. Yeah. What were we just talking about? And I was like, we should just start recording. My mind we went blank. We were talking about how therapists are taught to be really quiet and reserved. But then when we get in the online space, we get challenged because people want to see humanity. Yes, that was right. And how most people that follow you or me don't necessarily care as much about your qualifications as much as they care about your words and um, your output impacting their lives in a positive way. Yeah. And I actually often wonder too, if people sought out therapists based on that, like based on how somebody's message and how they feel relating to that person, what would be different in those relationships too? And if we would make different choices. It would be interesting to see now you've got me in the, in the dork rabbit hole of like, (laughs) it it would be interesting to study a person, a therapist's qualifications versus their effect on couples and on healing. Yeah, because qualifications is like, you know, it's a title, it's a label. We were talking about yeah. that. And, you know, what's, be, what's past that? And what, what do you want to know about how that person can help you and what they've done, what they've been through, what they've studied and all of that important stuff that we don't ask. So maybe we should start there. So Tammy, Amanda, like, what are your qualifications? Like, who the heck are you? Yeah. For, for those who are listening, they're like, I don't know this person. Like, what's your deal? Yeah. Who are you? So- I am Tammy Amanda. My actual real last name is Sassone, but I go by Amanda for the coaching space. And I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And I am also, I refer to myself as a mind-body coach because I support women in the mind-body integration. Um, I'm a yoga therapist and I have a lot of training in movement therapies. And that's kind of a bit about my background. What is a yoga therapist? Is that a yoga instructor or is that different? Yeah. So I'm a, when I was, it's there, it's more intensive training around. Well, for me particularly, I did it to heal trauma in the body and the nervous system because that's my background. And so it's, it's a more therapeutic approach to practicing yoga. 
that's about helping people be in their bodies and tolerate movement in their bodies as opposed to just leading a flow or something. So it's using that practice to heal. Gotcha. And my reading on the internet suggests that you are sort of a specialist in trauma release, nervous system regulation. You've done a lot. I feel like you sort of undervalued your qualifications there. I feel like you've done a lot of training and you've studied with some badass humans and you know a lot of shit. Is that fair? Yeah, that's accurate. I, <laughs> I devoted my life for like seven years to studying trauma, the brain and the nervous system. Like I like strictly devoted that time of my life to learn everything I could about that topic. Okay. So <laughs> why did you do that? Like what was the initial nudge or the fascination? The true, the true, honest, most true answer is that I think I was trying to heal myself. Yeah, I, I, nearly, I nearly just asked you like, what's the pain or like what happened yeah. to you right so i am a i am i survived childhood sexual abuse for the first 8 years of my life and i couldn't obviously for a long time couldn't make sense of this and i took it out on my body i struggled with an eating disorder and so i started therapy you know in my teens but i think there was just, there was so many missing pieces in my journey and so many things I didn't have and didn't know how to create even with therapists. I didn't know how to, I lied to everyone. There was no safety. I didn't know how to trust people. So even people trying to help me. And I think naturally I wasn't getting better. And I think at that point when I had been talking and looping and never sharing my story, like I was like, I'm going to figure out how to help. You know, I said other people, but I think it was really myself. And I did obviously learn a lot and changed a lot of things. So that was the motivation initially. Mm. Yeah, it was like my own human project. <laughs> yeah, I think it's super common, right? For, for coaches or comedians or people that are trying to make the world better, that they have experienced some kind of traumatic pain that they've somehow channeled into passion or purpose, right? It yeah. sounds like that was your story as well. What do you, just going back to that very traumatic childhood, and thank you for sharing so openly, like yeah. what do you think people need to know about like childhood abuse or, or, or sexual abuse? Like what do you wish the world knew? Oh, that's a big question. Um, there's so much. I think that it's so common Mm -hmm. And that it's more common than we know that it's not, it happens in any home, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of wealth, regardless of, you know, and when, you know, especially childhood sexual abuse, it really changes a child's brain. And this is what I realized that whereas my brain was supposed to be learning how to relate socially and how to be studying in school and how to understand safety and, you know, kind of developing in that phase of life, my, my emotions, my identity, my place in the world. And all of that goes away when you're undergoing such um, severe trauma and such severe unpredictability. And it changes the brain. It changes your brain to where you're actually at a deficit. You know, I never really had friends in school. I didn't know how to relate to the world. It, it robbed from me 
so much development and security and, and a sense of self. You know, there's so many ways that I can answer this, but it disconnected me from my body. You know, it taught me how to be a really good number. It taught me how to be an amazing victim and manipulate people. You know, it taught me how to lie to protect, you know, I was always scared for my life. And, you know, I'd be lying if I told you that, like, even to this day, I don't feel that hypervigilance out in the world when I'm solo traveling or, you know, that that's not something I am forever working on that piece of safety and fundamental security in the world and in my being. So when you say that it changes your brain, how do you mean, do you mean physiologically or emotionally? Trauma, trauma changes your brain. And you know how like, to the point where like it will black out memory, like it will black out periods of your life. Your brain, you know, the body and the brain will be stuck in fight or flight. So like the brain kind of starts to establish new neural pathways that are all rooted in survival. And that's where the brain starts to change. Whereas like our pathways of socialization, identity formation, all of these things should be forming. My, how to read every human in the room how to find a way, you know, I was the kid that learned how to wedge myself behind toilets and and intentionally break my leg so I wouldn't have to go to their house or things like that. So like, that's what I would think about as a kid instead of my play date. And, you know, so when I, my brain was always then working to like, how can I get out of this? How can I keep myself safe? It's almost as if a lens that you saw the world through was swapped out one day or or over multiple years and now you saw the world as a dangerous place that you were perpetually vigilant about yeah well whatever fires together wires together in the brain and that's Mm -hmm. how we develop neural pathways so like we don't when we're walking i don't think like right foot left foot right foot left foot i just walk (laughs) like i don't think about brushing my teeth or opening my mouth to talk to you that's just Mm -hmm. in my brain you know So the same thing happens with the shit, like the fear, the scarcity, the, you know, that keeps firing. And so my brain will change to adapt. Right. Okay. So maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. So why don't we step back and talk about trauma? So how, how do you describe trauma? What is it? Do we all have it? Because you hear that word thrown around a lot. And I feel like you're kind of a trauma guru in a way. Uh, it's a weird thing that just came out of my mouth, but you know a lot about trauma, let's say. Yeah. Um, do you mind unpacking that topic a little bit? Not at all. Okay. So what is trauma? I think when we commonly think of trauma, I even had a client yesterday be like, I don't have trauma. I don't, I've never been raped. I've never been beaten. My parents loved me, you know? And I'm like, you know, but you do. I mean, I didn't, you know, like, <laughs> you know, the way that I define trauma really now is that we think of these big events that that can't be me. You know, trauma is any situation that happens in our lives that overwhelms our nervous system that we can't and is threatening our safety and survival. So like this global pandemic is a trauma. And you know, some might say no, but we're, you know, this is traumatic. We're being forced in a situation we didn't choose. We're facing death right and left. Um, and whether we're inadvertently connected we are all connected. And so that affects us. That affects all of our nervous systems. You know, trauma is 
really anything that was too overwhelming to process. Um, and so I believe all of us have trauma. Yes. Mm. I love that. I've, I've heard it described as uh, something that you couldn't predict or something that surprised you. And then um, Gabor Mate, who you, you must be familiar with, uh, yes, he, 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 like, he probably is a trauma guru. Yes, I've studied so much of his work. <laughs> to use that phrase, right? So in his book, um, oh my gosh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, he described it as uh, an unmet need. Yeah. As simple as that. And so he has like the capital T trauma and the lowercase t trauma. And so a capital T, and I'm way outside my pay grade right now. So please correct anything. Yeah, that's but... actually perfect. So. Okay. The lowercase t trauma are the things like that we don't think about. Like when you were crying as a kid, were you nurtured and loved or were you sent to your room? That's traumatic. What needs did you not have met? You know, mm -hmm. worrying about when your next meal was going to come. Um, you know, I fully believe that our, our most primal basic need is survival and everything comes from survival. So you know, love is connected to survival, food's connected to survival, shelter, you know, all these pieces, but underneath, and everything that we as humans do is about a fundamental need of survival. Everything's related to a need. And so when those needs are not met generally, it's not even so much about a big event. That's traumatic. Mm. You know, when we leave babies crying for hours and hours in their room, that affects them. It's traumatic. Yeah, it's traumatic. It is it because it gives them a sense of abandonment or aloneness or? Yeah, they, you know, in they, what they start to learn is that no one's coming to help me. So, you know, now we're talking extreme, like, so when the baby is starting to rev up, right? This cry isn't loud enough. I'm going to rev up. Mm. I need to rev it up. I need to make it worse. Right. And then at that point already, the baby's like, shit, I'm alone. Hmm. You know, and even though they don't understand it in that sense, that's what they start to feel. And then that sort of affects the wiring of their brain as they mm -hmm. get older. Is that what you're saying? Yep. So every time they cry and no one comes, there's a neural pathway that gets met. No one's coming to save me. So then that same baby might stop crying over time. They might stop asking you for help. They might just start internalizing all of their pain. Crying does nothing for me. Crying is bad. So that lesson just gets strengthened every time the need isn't met. And so then that becomes the formative process of their brain. And then where do you draw the line? Because I've, I've heard some stuff around like self-soothing, self right? Of, of like, no, they just have to learn to take care of themselves. And they have to be, is this like a changing paradigm of parenting? Or? So I am so hesitant to like, <laughs> I think. <laughs> You know, there is value to letting a baby cry for a little bit to teach them how to self-soothe. But I think on the other side of that, you know, what's a little while? And as parents have a responsibility, actually, to teach their kids how to self-soothe. You know, kids, like, yes, we, I believe we all have innate healing internally. Like, we are born with an innate ability to regulate, to heal ourselves, all of these things, Right. But that, if that ability is not nurtured and grown internally, then that doesn't develop. And so instead of developing that like, oh, I know, I know what to do right now. I know how to self-soothe. We just, we started to kind of do other behaviors to get that need met and we don't nurture that. And so by rocking a baby, right, you're teaching a baby that that motion feels soothing. So then like, you know, 
you, you give them input that they can take and develop into their process of soothing. You know, they're, they're a clean slate. Their brain is empty. We have to teach them. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 It's just, I mean, I don't have any kids and I have just <laughs> such tremendous and profound respect for parents. And like, I grew up with many younger siblings and going from house to house with toddlers and babies and shit. And it's just like, wow. Uh, I think that, uh, parents are heroes <laughs> and oh, yeah, like, sure. just keeping that little creature alive day to day is like so powerful, much less trying to worry about all of the ways that you are or are not screwing the creature up. It's like, there's a lot going on. It's so much pressure. Yeah. Okay. So trauma forms early in childhood. It can be small T trauma, such as uh, not being told I love you all the way up to big T trauma, which is childhood abuse. Yeah. Those traumatic life experiences then alter our brains. And those alterations influence the way that we interact with the world as we get older. Yes, 100%. <laughs> okay. And so at some stage, people, most people get to this place where they're like, you know, I feel like life could be a little bit easier or I'm tired of feeling shit, or why does this always happen to me? And they start doing the work, or they go to therapy, or they read a book, right? And they get curious about how they are affecting their reality. Yeah? Yep. So, I mean, where, where do you start? How do you change your brain? How do you heal trauma? And these are like pretty sweeping topics, I understand. But like, Let's These are my that. favorite questions. Okay. Yeah. yeah just yeah. feel free to ramble about whatever you like, Tammy. <laughs> so, so I think like we, we heal in phases. Like I couldn't hear some of the things I hear now six years ago. I just couldn't. I wasn't there. And I think like there's no way that a, a book or a quote, you know, you can read the same book 10 years apart and it affects you differently. Anyways, unrelated to this tangent I'm about to go on. But I think that when we start to realize like there's something wrong, right? Like, you know, I, I'm always beating myself up in my head. I'm always dating toxic people. I just am so depressed. Like I'm not, I want something different. And we start to get help. Whatever starts the journey, even if it's an adult trauma, right? Whatever brings you to help. Initially, we need to talk. We need to process. We need to tell our story. It's part of the process. What I see happens, and I talk about this a lot, we get to this phase of what's next. We get to the what's next phase where we're like, I know why I'm choosing these men. I know why I'm eating my feelings away. I know why I'm drinking. I know why. I know why I made that choice. And it doesn't people, like, do listening, There's you. people listening to this podcast right now that probably they're like 20 minutes in. They're like, oh, no, I get it. Like, I understand why my trauma affects yeah. me. I know what to do, right? Yes, so now 100%. They're, so they're like kind of egoically at the what next phase. Yeah. Here's, here's the thing. <laughs> the what's next phase, some people, right? So the what's next phase is the phase right before the hard thing. And most of us don't want to do the hard thing. 
So we cycle in the what's next phase. So we just order the next book or we hire the next person to talk more or we get into the next relationship all because we don't want to do the hard fucking thing. And not in a way to shame listeners or to shame anyone. I did this for years. I don't want to do that thing. I'm going to try to fix this on my own and just keep talking about it, reading about it, sulking about it, right? You know, I think that, (laughs) and again, that's a really complicated thing too, because like in order to do what I do now, like the breathing practices I do, the movement I do, I had to create internal safety. So hard things are not always easy. Like there's, there's barriers sometimes to doing the hard thing. Like, and I want to honor that because that is so real and not to make people wrong for not, for choosing the behavior that they choose, but the only neuroplasticity or rewiring of the brain only happens in new action. Because like I said in the beginning, what fires together, wires together. So if I start taking new action, I'm teaching my brain a new way. And we can only live into a new way. Claiming I love myself is really different than like fucking loving myself when I am beating myself up and not wanting and like I'm choosing to soften and hit the practice, right? And so it's the dance between the talking loop and the action. And action is what rewires the brain. I feel like there's also uh, layers to, or not layers, levels to this stuff. That's the way I, I approach it is like, oftentimes I find that people are at say level two and they're reading and following and comparing themselves to people that are at level 32. And then they're judging themselves or they try to live in a way that those people at level 32 are living and it feels overwhelming or they do it for a day and it's too hard. So they quit. And I think an antidote to that is to compare yourselves to level three, just try to get from level two to level three. And that for somebody at level two, that is just as hard as somebody at level 32 going to level 33 like in a way, like hard is relative, hard is subjective. Like there's no need to compare yourself to what feels difficult to you. Does that make sense? It's like, oh, it is be, so be okay with on. baby steps, I guess. Baby steps is all we have because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is not easy. And, you know, if, if we're going to stick with the topic of trauma or, and, you know, and in healing and generally, but you add, you add trauma, which we all have, right. And depending on the spectrum of your trauma, not that someone's trauma is worse, but sometimes more prolonged, more complex, the impact will be different and more Mm. pervasive. And I think that, you know, the pre-step, you know, to taking the hard thing might be learning how to create safety. And so none of us are going to be in the same process. And, and I totally like, I was that person years ago that was like judging, hating. There are no, there's no way these people are like healed. And what do they have that I don't, you know, like when I was so wounded and, you know, the only difference was that they did the hard thing. They continued to pursue the hard action. And, you know, and again, in layers, what is your next small action? Not like the next action of the person you want to be, you know, or what is this person doing that you admire so much that you want to embody? And how can you learn from those processes instead of making yourself defective, wrong, and less than? So when you describe doing the next hard thing or doing a hard thing in terms of a therapeutic healing 
Um, can you give an example or two of that, of what that might look Absolutely. like? So, so much of, you know, of how I operate as a therapist and I am not a conventional therapist. I am like a very unconventional therapist. And what does that mean? So like, you know, I, I have a lot of practices that I give my clients. Like I don't just talk to them. You know, I, you know, I always meet them where they're at, but a lot of clients come to me in the what's next phase, you know, and I try to sort of have my practice around that. I love working there. Like to watch people bridge the mind and body is just like, I love that shit. And so the action is like, okay, so, so many clients come in, like, I want to start working out. I want to start, I want to change my career. I want to be in a loving relationship. I want to feel happy. I want to feel fulfilled, right? I want to have meaning in my life. I don't want to be in my head all the time. Like I want to befriend myself, all of these things we want. And so, so much of how we learn what the next thing, and this is again, layered. This is layered. <laughs> so I'm going to do my best to answer this question, but it's like, what is, so we develop a plethora of practices. So, and for, and again, for all of us, that's going to be different. So what works for you is not going to work for my next client. So do you resonate with breath work and some yoga and some writing, or do you resonate with screaming into a pillow and going for a run and dancing, right? So what, what is something that you sort of gravitate towards? And then in your moment of thought looping and sabotage and avoidance, the practice that you're avoiding, right? That you're using sort of these numbing behaviors, these sabotaging behaviors to get through. And can you choose the practice instead? Does that, and that's how I, what I really strive is to teach clients, coaching, therapy clients, whatever, how to honor their need in the moment and then take that action when they don't want to the most, especially then. So like recognizing what they need moment to moment. So cultivating an awareness of what's going on internally and then asking themselves what they're avoiding. Yes. So like, Tammy, I did the breathing. Tammy, I did the yoga. Tammy, I went for the run and I still feel like shit. And I'm like, well, what are you bypassing? Mm. Did you need to just lay on the floor? Were you feeling tired? And so what was the need that you bypassed in that moment? And then that's the practice you come back to. And we're always learning, mm. but that's exactly it. And so how, cause I get this question often, which is how do you distinguish between honoring your truth and avoiding the hard thing? So the difference, for example, between going for a run, like, no, that's fitness and that'll make me better versus like, I don't, I'm actually tired. I need to rest today versus like, I just don't want to do it. You know, I love this question and there's no real good answer to it. I think that like, because sometimes the run is what you needed when you were tired and other times it was sleep. And the only way we really learn to solidify our confidence in our choices is by fucking up. You know, I think that like, <laughs> The more you make, like, and no one can do this for you. And I get this question all the time too. Like, when do I push myself and when do I honor myself? And, you know, and again, what is your patterns historically? Let me get to know you. What have you done in the past? And then, you know, also I think we struggle to make decisions and just stick with our choice. 
and just let that be the choice, even if it was the wrong choice, instead of beating yourself up, even if you made the wrong choice in the moment, you learned from it, either you learned from it or you benefited from it, you know, and then we kind of learn from that. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think even sort of taking that a step further is acknowledging that there is no wrong choice. Yeah. It's like you just make a choice and you go with it and whatever choice you choose, you're still on the path that you're still right. making progress. Maybe you've just learned something instead of did something or maybe vice versa, whatever. Like it's all okay. It's all good. Um, okay. I dig that. I want to know how you, <laughs> sorry, I just, I have lots of questions about this. Yeah. I want to know how you create safety internally yeah. so that you can cultivate self-love, self-acceptance and healing. It's, I love this question. So I am a big believer in inner child work. And there's, so I think there's many ways to do this, but you know, I'll speak to what's really worked for me and what I practice. That's all I can speak to. So inner child work and movement actually are two ways. And so I'll talk about inner child healing first. And, you know, I believe fully that we have little children that live in us that hold stories, right? Like I had little children that were holding my trauma story and that were holding the stories of the body comments that I got. And we're holding a lot of my stories. And when we in order to create safety inside, I had to learn to, to nurture my inner world. And so through inner child work, so going in and doing inner child healing, healing my mother wound, my father wound, my abuse wounds, and by intentionally building a really strong relationship with my little girl inside, I've been able to feel stronger, safer, and more confident because I've been able to kind of override the wound instinct to be in the moment by working with her collaboratively. And so inner child healing in a nutshell, I don't know, I'm going to try to like explain this in a short sentence, but <laughs> it's basically the practice by which we get to heal, reparent, and create new stories for the children that are holding on to wounding inside. And it's a guided process by which you do that. So it's guided by a coach, a therapist, and then it's your own dialoguing with this child on a daily basis to build that. Okay. So you flagged a bunch of phrases that I hear a lot about, such as yeah. re reparenting, mother yeah. wound, uh, inner child. Do you mind giving more of an example of what this might look like? Yeah. Hypothetically. Um, For sure. So, you know, a mother wound, right? Mother's the role of nurturing, protecting, loving, right? You know, how we want, how we would imagine this relationship with a mother. And, you know, again, I'm not going to make a claim that all of us imagine this the same, but for me, that's sort of, and so when that wasn't present, I have a mother wound. And so I might, I might go out and choose friendships that reflect that toxic dynamic and partners because I'm subconsciously living in that wound. And so I was guided to create an image of my ideal mother, which was strong and fierce and loving and nurturing. And so 
I would go in with that image and I would walk into the door of my childhood home and I would see my little child and I would just embrace her with these qualities and I would have her share with me what she's holding and I would give her all the things I didn't get through repeated sessions and through healing that and showing up as that ideal mother figure for myself. I was able to establish that safety and that connection with her. You know, some people will ask you to imagine who you want your ideal mother to be and then visualize that parent, which is also a beautiful practice. So that's the mother wound. Okay. And then is the therapeutic aspect of that that you just described, is that the reparenting component? That's the reparenting component. So it's like when we are like beating ourselves up or making ourselves wrong, reparenting would be like what you would wish the ideal parent would say to you. And so you come in and you're like, I'm sorry. Like that wasn't wrong. That was beautiful. I see you trying to express yourself. And you're almost like changing the stories through reparenting. You're like rewriting the past. Yes, basically in your brain. Okay, so what would you say to someone who's kind of skeptical devil's advocate, me, who's like, this sounds like a little bit like woo-woo self-talk, like really, I have to pretend that I'm the best version of my mom possible and tell my five-year-old self that I love them and that I'm there for them, and that's really going to rewire my brain and change my life? Come on, Tammy. I mean, I get this from clients all the time. So yeah, this you is want exact, me to do what? what so my, you... first, <laughs> my first response would be like, does it resonate with you? Cool. Like, we'll do something else. Like, I'm not going to sit here and convince you that you need to do this thing. There's so many ways to do this. What I will say though, and I was thinking about this on my run earlier, is how much we write things off before we try them. And I'll say, if you gave this an honest go and you come back and you're like, Tammy, you are fucking nuts, then be done with it. Like there's, it's not like this one practice is going to do it. There's so many. So like, you know, but I always say, cause like, see how it feels for you to do it. You know, maybe you'll surprise yourself. Maybe you're like, this isn't for me. Yeah. And maybe that discomfort is exactly the reason that you need to do this thing. hundred percent, you know, and I like to get people there on their own, but like, you know, I'll say like, tell me more about why this feels frou-frou and tell me more about like why you're so skeptical and like, let's Mm. never, like, I don't bulldoze resistance. Like when resistance is there, we work with resistance. Like we don't bulldoze that in any capacity, you know? Is that like one of your strategies as a a healer of sorts is like when you pick up on your resistance radar, then suddenly you zero in and like, okay, let's, let's dance with that for a minute. Yeah. There's always resist. There's so much resistance presence with clients. Like, you know, that the, the resistance of like why you didn't choose the thing you wanted to choose. What was the resistance? What did that feel like? You know, Mm. how did you, how did you like allow that fully, you know, because that's part of the process too. Like we can't just bypass that. Yeah. Cause I'm the same. Like, I often say, that's interesting. Like, or did you notice that you just, right? Because to me, the resistance, or, the resistance is breadcrumbs on the path to healing or the breadcrumbs on the path to epiphanies or there's, there's something there, right? Like a, like a grain of sand on, at the core of the pearl, so to speak. You're like, what's actually going on below that resistance? And usually it's a fear of some kind, Right? Always. And, um, and so 
that is an example of doing the hard thing, right? It might not be to move to Peru and do 10 ayahuasca journeys. It might just be, hey, stare yourself in the face in the mirror for a minute and just actually see yourself. A hundred percent. Like, and those are the baby steps. And mm -hmm. sometimes the resistance is the hard thing. Like if you're not, if you're feeling like I literally can't do this hard thing, then what is the next right thing for you to get there? Mm -hmm. And then this kind of leads me to the next thing that I was going to answer about how we create safety. So with so much of the work that I do centers around learning to heal the nervous system. So our nervous system will never it's not like we can ever get it to constantly be relaxed and grounded. Well, but... you've obviously never been enlightened, Tammy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But so, but so like we can have realistic goals, let's say, where we could try to get a little bit more relaxed. Uh, yeah. Yep. Okay. That's what you could take from that for sure. <laughs> that we can, we can learn that we have strategies that can pull us back to relaxed. And I think the safety comes with a relaxed nervous system. When you feel like you can breathe deeply and you feel space, you're creating safety. So if the inner child stuff, you're like, no, you know, whatever. You can work with the nervous system. And because in fight or flight, you're going to feel dysregulated. You're going to feel chaotic. You're going to feel foggy, right? You're hijacked. You're your left brain is turned off. In fight or flight, you're only accessing emotional brain. Your ability to, like, your access to executive functioning is not there. You're reactive, you are spinning, and that's not a safe feeling. And when we have trauma or struggle generally, that's, our, that's how we, like, our default. And so we seek to create further chaos to feed that default system because actually most of us don't even know what calm and regulated feels like when we start our journey. Mm -hmm. We don't even know. And then when we feel that, it feels too weird. And then we immediately sabotage. And so training the nervous system for safety is really training the nervous system in small increments to hold calm and joy to a greater capacity. And to just ultimately be yourself, I suppose. A hundred percent where you're not hijacked by fear and survival and those you know, like we, we can establish practices that help us let our body know, you know, the brain lies to us all the time and tells the stories. And, you know, despite the fact that it's always trying to keep us healthy and safe, it hasn't always learned the best way to do that. So it's going to spitfire learned behaviors all the time. That's what it does. What's an example of that? We have to change that through training it. So like an example of that would be like addiction. The brain, right? The addictive part of the brain is going to be like, use, use this behavior, sabotage. You know, this is a more extreme example because in doing that, there's a release for people and there's no grounding, there's no center, there's no heart place. But instead of listening to that voice, every time you don't listen to that voice and you train the nervous system to ground you're closer to recovery. You're training for the healthier response. So instead of like picking up the bottle or the food, you're picking up the phone or your breath practice. Mm. Does that make sense? So you almost want to pair like new things together. Mm. And so, so that sounds like one example of a practical approach to creating safety internally, like yeah. other, other habits that we can cultivate. 
Yeah, I think on a greater scale, you know, it always starts it within. And so I think daily practices of some kind of, of breathing or movement of, of kind of being with your world internally. And then I think externally, you know, there's a lot of pieces to safety, like having safe people in your life, right? Like a safe community, you know, where you spend your time creating safe environments, making your home feel like a safe place, you know? And so I think as we work internally to ground and heal, we also want to look at our lives and look at where we're not feeling safe in our lives and, and, and what we need to do there to feel better about that, the structures we need in place. Mm. And sort of going back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, that might mean that you need to do some hard things. Yes. Of changing some relationships, establishing some boundaries, saying no to a lot of things that feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And that becomes the practice. A hundred percent. Oh man. So you, is there a way to change your life or to heal trauma without feeling uncomfortable? No. <laughs> no, this is why. When we get to when we get to feel uncomfortable, we get to meet our resilience. There is nothing else in this world that is going to bring you face to face with how strong you are. And we forget this. We forget this all the time that before the world got to us and before the shit got to us, we were a clean slate and we were unstoppable. We could have learned anything and we were born with resilience. We were born with adaptability. We were born with self-healing capacities and those have gotten quiet. The only thing where you get to build evidence for the opposite of struggle is to see how incredibly resilient and strong we are. And we can only do that when we get to the other side of hard things. There's nothing that can do that for you. Are you sure there's not like a mantra I could say three times yeah. every morning? Not the celery juice, not yeah. the mantra. Not like not a superfood, like a powder I could put into a... superfood. It's the... Nope. I, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I, I actually have to do hard things. Yeah, you do. We all do. But as you suggest, like we are genetically hardwired over billions of years of evolution to have that in our DNA. Like we come fully equipped. Like we come from a distinguished lineage of ancestors who survived fucking everything yeah. that the world threw at them and yet managed to keep going. And we're like, ah, oh, but I don't want to face my past. It's hard. And that's fair. That's totally fair. And, you know. But it's hard until it's done, you know? And then on the other side of it is like, radical freedom and transformation and bliss and like expansion yeah you know here's the other thing expansion radical bliss freedom like it's mm. also not for everyone and like there are people that are going to go through their lives and never choose that mm -hmm. and like they're not wrong for that it's just their choice and you know i i think that like i wouldn't want that for my life you know i wouldn't choose that path and i think like I don't know. Some people do choose that path and go that road. And, you know, that's great. We have free will. We're humans. I love this can of worms that you've just opened. This rabbit hole doorway that you've just pointed out. Yeah. Because you're talking about acceptance, right? And non-judgment, which is you might have people in your life that you really care about, that you really love dearly. And they choose to make decisions that you just shake your head at. 
I'm like, what are you doing? I can see so clearly the other side of this. Like you could be so much happier, healthier, vibrant, more alive. So how do we accept things in general? Like what's the secret to accept this? Is, tell me there's a mantra for that or some kind of superfood. Yeah, it's a perfect mix of like cacao, spirulina. Okay. Um, I had this this morning, actually. I'm, so I'm good. Coconut butter. That that is the acceptance uh, superfood situation. Uh, okay. If you so. took anything from this podcast, go make that today. Yeah. Um, but I think the because we have to do it for ourselves too, right? Because deep down we know that we're probably in some areas of our life not fully acting in accordance with our highest self. No, because we're human. And I think, I think we're touching on something really big. Like we have free will and we're not always going to choose the healing thing. We're going to say the stupid thing. We're going to react. We're going to choose the Netflix series sometimes. And like, that's cool, right? We cannot be in the work 24 seven. Then we're not we, we miss the whole other part too of like just living life and experiencing joy and being flexible and being human. And I think so these, these terms that are constantly like worthiness, self-acceptance, self-love, like these are action terms. They're not something we absorb or like a choice we make. They're actions. So how do you practice self-acceptance, right? When somebody you love is not choosing whatever path you're choosing or the path that we have deemed more evolved and woke and all of these things, right? How do you then deal with your own responses to be able to love that person? And it always, the work is always about us, right? Like those triggers, those activations, like we love them. So what do you need to do to show up fully in love for that person? You know, and I think, again, this is a vast practice that encompasses so many different things you can do about that. But ultimately, it's like it comes back to you. Yeah. So like one way that I look at that is uh, to be curious. Like, oh, gosh, that person is really driving me cuckoo up a tree right now. That's interesting. Why is that happening? And what does it mean for me? Right. And so to continue that Example, if I find myself judging somebody for, you know, eating uh, deep fried Snickers bars and, you know, smoking a pack of cigarettes and I'm saying, God, that person, you know, they could be doing so much better. Perhaps a way to get curious is to look at myself at places where I'm not choosing my best decision, where I'm not in full integrity, like where there are places in my life where there are little leaks of power or integrity that I'm not doing super great at. So like, like the, the ego, I think feels like it judges people so that I feel better about myself. Right. And, and a flip side of that is actually diving into where I don't feel great about myself and I don't need that judgment of others. I can actually do the work internally. Right. It's like compassionate curiosity always like without shaming and judging ourselves for having the judgment. And I think people will always be a mirror always mm. for like what we're disowning in ourselves when we get triggered that's the doorway like what am i not honoring within me what's this bringing up for me and then that's a that's a doorway for us to do work in that area and you said it right you know it's always the hard thing is to come back home inside and ask you know what's happening in here what am i not looking at what am i disowning that i'm projecting onto you unfairly mm. 
is that true of any judgment or insulting thoughts or that's a big question um (laughs) yeah i mean (laughs) judgment as a as a topic i think we absorb collectively judgments we have our own judgments i think judgment is always like to always be compassionately curious about it. Where is this coming from? Where did I hear this? Where did I learn this? Is this what I believe? And then also, am I disowning something in me? Am I engaging in behaviors that I don't like? And then, yeah, I think generally speaking, yes. And then what would be the next step after that compassionate curiosity? So maybe you you get curious, you ask some questions, you discover, oh my gosh, I do this thing. What's, what's next? Um, or, or yeah. even, sorry, just to add to that, or if you've identified currently that you have some kind of wounding or there's some kind of sorrow or sadness or internal like feeling that you know is there, um, where do you begin kind of making those changes? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of ways to answer that. You know, I think starting with like, what's your relationship to feeling? How do you feel your feelings? Can you give those feelings space? to be felt and held and nurtured and integrated. You know, uh, my first instinct is never to like run to get information about this process. Like feelings arise to be felt. Mm. You know, you can always seek support through a therapist, a coach for clarity around the struggle and learn tools to feel and integrate emotions. But the next step really would be like, okay, when this arises, I have information that this is a trigger for me. And in the moment, I'm going to choose to try to stay calm and regulated and honor that this is my own process so that I can show up here in love and be in my process and Mm. learn to feel and integrate these bigger emotions that I don't like, like judgment and fear and sadness and allow those within myself so that I can allow those within other people. So like feelings are data, just information. They're all data. That's what they are. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have a mutual friend, Courtney McNabb, who I had on this podcast, and she said one of her practices was to roll out a yoga mat, set a timer for an hour, and just lay there until you feel some shit. And at some point, you're going to feel angry, you're going to feel sadness, you're going to feel like you're wasting time, but something's going to come up. And so do you have any practices yourself or that you, recognize, or that you recommend to clients along those yeah. lines of... Like, yeah, I get it. Like, feel my feelings. I know. And like, I'm being sarcastic somewhat, but it seems to be a reoccurring theme through many of these episodes or conversations I've had with really intelligent people. Right. Um, And so like, is there practical ways to feel your feelings? Or is it just a matter of like, you actually just have to feel some shit? You know, I think like somebody once asked me, like, when you refer to feeling your feelings, do you just sit there and like close your eyes? You know, I think. <laughs> Do you just pause the conversation? Like, hang on, yeah. I just have to feel some sorrow for a moment. Oh, gosh. Right. Yeah. Like, that's what I think people visualize. Like, you know, do I just sit there and. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, so the practices that I use, that I teach, that I embody, I love embodied experiences. So I love, like, how can you get in your body? So, like, if you're feeling mad, like start screaming and smacking a pillow on a bed and literally stomping your feet and shaking. I'm really big into like movement and shaking and releasing. And so like, let yourself like over to it and let yourself get out of control. And I, you know, so that's one thing I think 
sadness, give yourself space to cry and hold a pillow and hold yourself and nurture yourself and lay there until it comes up. You know, breath practices designed to bring about feeling, Mm -hmm. you know, holotropic, some of the more intense practices or even just belly breathing. I think almost visualizing that you're feeling had a color and almost visualizing where it is in your body and a texture and letting it fill you. And so I think there's a lot of different ways and people resonate. Some people, I don't love like journaling and writing and talking because I don't feel like those are so much embodied. You know, feelings are so somatic. Mm. I, think, and I, I agree largely with that. I think I would add a caveat that writing can be super powerful so long as you are free flowing, not taking your pen off the page, like just letting it out, non-judgment. Like you can even make huge scribbles. You can rip the pages and shit. Yeah. Um, But so for some people that is a really powerful practice, but it sounds like you just have to start trying some stuff. Right. And like finding your way. And Mm -hmm. I think like there's no right way to feel your feelings. And I'm really big on that. Like whatever the way works for you, do that thing. Like I was doing this uh, physical therapy exercise the other day for my shoulder. I had like the shoulder thing that happened. And I'm doing these miserable weight training, stretchy band things. And one of them in particular is just, it sucks. It's just hard. And you get to this place where your muscles just, or I get to this place where my muscles just uh, like stop, stop working. And this happened maybe a week ago. And I, and I noticed tears welling up in my eyes and I was feeling really sad all of a sudden. Yeah. Like I wanted to throw a tantrum. Uh, and I had this moment of, of insight, of like, oh, you're feeling something. This is great. Keep going. And I forced myself to do more of these stupid repetitions so that I could actually feel more miserable in the moment. But then on the other side of that, it was like, oh, that was great. I like work some shit out of my body. Yeah, we're so scared that if we let ourselves start to feel, it's never going to go away. That's a good point. So we don't lean into it because I'm like, if I let myself have this anger, like, is this going to stop? Yeah, anger, especially. So many people are afraid of anger because they think of anger as rage, violence, all of these things. But I think it's like, well, if I let myself feel afraid, how will I go to work? Like, how will I function in the world? And I think the short answer is that when you start to allow yourself to feel, it is overwhelming in the beginning because all of us are emotionally constipated when we start this journey. We just are. There's so much just ready to come out. We're constipated. And the answer is that it won't always be that way. And I, learning to develop that safety and trust around your capacity to hold it. Like I said, you're growing your nervous system's ability to hold that. And then right alongside sadness, joy, like right alongside those like more bad emotions that we label, right, is joy. On the other side of that, that anger release is so much pleasure, but we're so scared that it's never gonna stop, that we, that we stop it before it even starts. And I think that that's a beautiful you followed it, you allowed it. So you could have that other side. Yeah, but I think you've raised a really powerful point, which is that we each individually have a story around what it means to feel things and be emotional. Yeah. And if your story is that anger is all consuming, it's terrible, it takes forever, it'll ruin my life, then you're probably not gonna let yourself feel anything. Versus if you actually dive into that 
and you find that anger can actually take 12 seconds of squeezing a pillow really firmly or screaming into a pillow or just tensing your whole body and releasing, then it changes the story and the story changes your life. Right. It's the story about the feelings, not the feelings we're afraid of. Yeah. And like, so saying you should say, probably say that again because I feel like that was some that was a pretty deep little epiphany there. It's the story, it's about, story the about the feeling and not the feeling. A feeling lasts maybe 90 seconds. It's the story and the environment you create around avoiding the scary story is the suffering. That's the like that's what we do. We have stories that we've attached to this. Like I, it's inconvenient to be sad. I don't right? have time for that. Yeah, mad is too scary. And so the stories perpetuate like the states we don't want to be in. And we can change those stories with allowing ourselves to experience the feeling. And that's how you win at life. Yes, that's how you win at life. <laughs> is, but in an overly simplistic way, is that how you, is that healing? Yes. For sure. Like even on, even noticing that you have a story, like anytime somebody gives me an excuse about why they don't have time to feel or why they don't have two minutes to take a deep breath. Mm. I'm like, okay, let's, let's really dive into this. What is the story here? What mm. is the breath associated with? What is the fear? What is the, you know, let's dive into this because there's some deep rooted stories. Yeah. I've heard it described as if you don't have five minutes to meditate, then you need five hours. Oh, for sure. Like, really? You can't find five? You probably have this with clients as well. Like, really? You can't find five minutes today to let yourself feel something? Like, that's interesting. Yeah, and like, maybe the story is that, like, that's not productive. And there's stories about, like, my worth is is being productive. And that doesn't Mm. fall into that paradigm. So then we get into bigger things. But I think it's always about, like, the... the paradigm by which the person lives and the stories they've taken on. And so mm. we have to unpack those to even create the space to allow the feeling. So again, it's the layers of the journey, but it's all the work. Yeah. And even just the awareness itself that you have something to work through, or there's an awareness that something isn't quite right internally, or there's an awareness that there must be another way to do something. Even if you aren't sure of what that thing is, like, just the fact that you have that awareness is huge, amazing progress. And like, bravo to you. That's, a, that's like step one to step 10. Like, congrats. Like, yes. you're doing it. Yeah, That's the work. That's, it's all the work. Noticing, being aware, even having a moment where you're like, wow, you know, all of these, this is all the journey, all of it. And it's all beautiful. Um, I have a random question. Yeah. And it's not super random, but we had previously messaged about this concept that I just invented called healthy grieving. Yeah. Or maybe maybe I didn't invent it, but in my email message, I was like, we should talk about healthy grieving, like whatever the heck that actually is. So, um, do you mind if we touch on grief for a few moments and what it yeah. means to grieve and how you actually do that in a healthy way? Yeah. So grief is like a is I think one of the most misunderstood emotions and it is a big one. And so like, you know, so grief happens whenever we lose something and, you know, be it something that's really small, like a wedding that was scheduled during this pandemic or a major loss. And, you know, 
grief presents as a lot of things. Grief presents as depression. It presents as anxiety. It presents as tearfulness. It presents as rage. It presents as exhaustion. And it's all under this umbrella of loss. And, you know, I think healthy grieving is, you know, and then the, the term and then the practice of what this looks like is really allowing yourself to feel the feelings that come up around the loss. And, you know, whenever we're going through something where loss was, it's, it's, it's almost, you know, healthy grief is creating almost more space sometimes than necessary to give yourself a chance to be and honoring that there's no timeline for this, that processing loss and integrating loss does not happen on a timeline. And like you could be at work one day and just start falling apart about something. And you know, that's grief. That's, that's an expression of that feeling. And, you know, it's upping your, how gentle you are with yourself, upping your rest, you know, connecting with yourself, really giving your space to be where you, yourself space to be where you are and honoring that, that you're not an inconvenience and you're not too much and you're going through it and allowing it with compassion and reverence for yourself. If that, you know, in short, and, um, you know, so taking really good care of yourself and, feeling those feelings and talking about it. And I don't always say talk about it, but with safe people, allowing yourself to talk through that and make memories of that and celebrate the joy of what was lost as well as the pain, honoring life as well as the loss, honoring what's happening as well as what, you know, what didn't yet happen and, and those kinds of things. Mm. It sounds like the foundation of healthy grieving is the same as all the stuff we've been talking about yeah. in this chat. Is that fair? Yeah, it is fair. And I think too, we so often like when something big happens or we have a loss or things, we so often rush to trying to make meaning and trying to fix it and trying to correct it and trying to find a solution and, you know, giving ourselves and I think instead of going into all of that, just being where you are, like allowing, allowing it to unfold as it unfolds without jumping to meaning making and memorialization, like all before we're ready, all before we're like onto the next thing, finding the next answer. Um, yeah. So it's presence, cultivating presence, cultivating compassion. Yeah. Is there a stage though at which, the grieving process goes on for too long? Like if somebody's two years, you know, like, one of my really good friends uh, lost her father and she actually, and she wrote a post, this was like two years ago, which really actually opened my eyes to this question. And it was, it was all about her journey of grief and how she lost a lot of friends, people who thought she should have been done grieving. Hmm. And that she was still just so sad all the time and wasn't moving on. And I think that like, yes, when you're finding, when is grief too much? Like if you're finding yourself like not able to get out of bed and not functioning and like sort of the quality of your life is just really impacted, right? That's sort of, okay, maybe it's time to get some help. 
But I don't know that we ever fill those holes. I don't know that, you know, that loss ever, I think we just learn to co coexist with loss. And I don't know that we need to fill those holes for places that we once had, you know, something. And so I think if it's, yes, the answer of like, if you're just not functioning and it's like three years down the line and you're still obsessing and ruminating, that might be like, okay, maybe sooner than that, it's time to get out. Mm. Um, but honoring that it could be months, right, before you're really feeling like you're back to yourself and you might cry every day and you might feel more irritable and it's okay. It's not inconvenient. It's welcome. It's appropriate. Acceptance, hey? Again, yeah. You know, and I think healthy grief is, is everything that we talked about, giving yourself to it without timelines and expectations of how it should be. Mm. Well, Tammy Amanda, we've touched on so many wonderful things. Is there anything yeah. that we haven't touched on yet that you're like that you want to get across to the the people of Earth or any final words of wisdom? I don't know. In relation to this topic, I think like when we go through hard things in life, which all of us do, you know, we you know, we call ourselves broken and we start to label ourselves and find like all the reasons and justifications for our humanity. And, you know, I think it takes us out of, you know, our, it takes us out of our hope and our resilience and out of, you know, our ability to move forward. And that this experience of whatever we go through, I think we feel like we've arrived when we're finally like positive and light and happy all the time. And we have this goal and that's not life and that the goal is not and you're healing the benchmarks of your the of progress and anything is not about whether you woke up happy or sad it's how well you nurtured and met your needs that day and how well you loved yourself and you know how much you honored your truth versus how good did it feel and how happy are you mm. and when it doesn't feel good just keep going and i think like you're not broken we're just human we're on this ride together and I guess that like the culmination of everything just that brought that to my mind. I love that. It's like, uh, the treasure isn't happiness. The treasure is wholeness. Yeah. Like that's what we're here for to feel it all, like have a wholehearted life experience. And we need to like re like, adjust our expectations of our growth and stop being so quick to like discount ourselves, discount how far we've come, discount all the small choices we've made along the way because we're not seeing the return yet. You know, it's mm. like everything's about an exchange system, an immediate return. And again, that's approaching this not from that whole place, from that place of needing to be fixed. Yeah. So patience. Yeah. Patience, acceptance, <laughs> compassion, non-judgment, <laughs> just, just the minor stuff. Well, you know, just those like easy concepts. At or... least, you know, we can cultivate these things until the scientists invent the superfood that just enlightens us, you know, a tablespoon a day. But until that stage, we've got to do the work, get uncomfortable, love ourselves, feel our feelings. Yeah, and I think it gets a little easier to get uncomfortable over time. I do. You know, the more you do it, it never feels great, but I think it gets a little easier. So that's that. <laughs> yeah, I find naming it helps. Like, what's that song? Like, Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend. Like, yeah. oh, 
The darkness is back. Oh, hello, darkness. Or, oh, sadness. That's interesting. I haven't felt you in a while. Hey, buddy. That. Yeah. What's happening? Come on, sit down. I got you. Yeah. Um, okay, where can people find you? Do you want to promote anything? I know you're on Instagram. Yeah, I'm actually right now in the middle of launching my group program. Oh. So it is called The Bloom. And Bloom. The Bloom, because just like flowers, we go through seasons of death and rebirth. And this program is about embodiment. So it's for it's exclusively for women. Um, it's about the women in the what's next phase, the women who know a lot, they've done a lot, and they're really struggling to, to make those changes. They're scared to be in their bodies. They're scared that they can't trust their feeling. They're scared to make these decisions that are riding on them. And so the bloom is all about embodiment and learning how to activate that self-healer. Right. And when does it start? Or it starts May 20th. And there's amazing women inside already. And so I'm taking more. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to do my best to get this out before May 20th or else it's people are going to listen and be like, oh, that's weird. I'm really interested. But that was three weeks ago, Jeremy. Yeah. And, <laughs> but if that's not speaking to you, I do work with women and men one-on-one -on -one too. So that's an ongoing offering. Yeah. And wh what is your website or what is your Instagram? So my Instagram is Tammy Amanda underscore. And my website is TammyAmanda.com and the newest, latest version is under construction and will be out in two weeks as well. So lots of good stuff coming. So like, is there another Tammy Amanda that took your name? Is that why you have to have the underscore? Yes. Yep. There is actually a few Tammy Amandas that have gotten creative with the underscores. Oh, huh. interesting. Years ago when I began, I went to join Twitter and yeah. uh, someone had i'm sure randomly come up with the idea to also use long distance love bombs but they had taken that and i was like that's okay i just won't join twitter it's not meant to be it's fine you can have your little tantrum I'm like you can have it it's fine you you jerk yeah uh, that's crazy that that was taken yeah it's okay disappointing kept me off twitter which yeah. is probably for the best yeah <laughs> Um, you're a gem. Thank you so much for all of your knowledge and your wisdom and, um, and just for inspiring us all with your healing journey. Like you've gone through a lot and you are blooming so big and boldly. Um, I'm excited to see what's next for you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was really, I really enjoyed our chat. Yeah. Good. Any, any final words? Just keep going. Just keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Like it. It's fun, right? Good episode. Lots of insights. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. You can check Tammy Amanda out on Instagram. She's got a website. Her new group coaching program is launching shortly or already launched, depending on when you're listening to this. And uh, yeah, enjoy feeling those feelings. Enjoy trying some new stuff and practicing compassion and understanding and acceptance for yourself and who you are and who you're trying to become, you know, because that's the point of life, isn't it? To just try and enjoy the wild ride. Thank you for being here. Thanks for your support. I appreciate you sharing this on social media with your friends and family, helping me to raise my impact in the world. Thank you sincerely and wholeheartedly for the five-star ratings, for leaving comments in the, on the rating articles. 
it helps me to get new guests and that is valuable and special. So thank you. I adore you. I appreciate you. I think the world of you and I will talk to you soon.